Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. Every once in a while, you'll get a chance to talk to someone and you have an unexpectedly fun time that you weren't expecting to have. So Dr. Keith Campbell is a co-author of The New Science of Narcissism. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Georgia, as well as the author of The Narcissism Epidemic, When You Love a Man Who Loves Himself, and then another 120 peer-reviewed articles. He lives also in Athens, Georgia, which I'd like to say is where the B-52s are from. And if you don't know that I love the B-52s, now you do. But here's the thing. He is so fun. And I just was ready for this really stodgy conversation. But A, he was super self-effacing, maybe because I asked him if he was a narcissist right out the gate. But what a lovely human being. I'm glad that we have somebody with so much equanimity and care rather than shaming, sort of finger-wagging, studying this topic for us all. So if you want to learn about narcissism and, and broaden your lens so that you can be an agent of change in the world and be prepared, find out that we're all narcissists, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, this is going to be a really fun, exciting interview for you, and definitely worth checking out, The New Science of Narcissism. I, I learned a lot as a clinician, some new things that I didn't, didn't know, so it was useful. All right, Dr. Keith Campbell. Keith, I'm already excited to talk to you just from the preamble, getting set up here tonight. And I don't understand how a guy that's seemingly as nice as you has written so many books on narcissism. So can we first start and tell me, are you a narcissistic jerk or did you somehow, <laughs> did you somehow just get really turned on by this subject that you've written so many books about it? What's the story? I mean, it, I, I don't think I'm that narcissistic. I, it, I think it's a totally fair question because often research is me-search. Um, I certainly was more when I was younger, uh, um, but this issue of ego and self-centeredness and uh, is really important in psychology, just theoretically. It, it, our ego is like a giant distortion field we put over our heads every morning and all the information that comes into us, we, we distort, you know, to make it fit our, our theory or narrative about ourselves. So it's a really interesting problem. And studying narcissism is is a way to study ego that's that you can really get a handle on it's a big ego it's fun to watch it does these different things and so it's it's been a way for me to understand the ego yeah and, and there's and then of course it's had these interesting implications for the world but it, it is more of a theoretical question than a i'm a little bit more of a buddhist in my vibe on things i try to be selfless and that's always been a real struggle um but but the narcissism is a little more theoretical so what in particular, it sounds to me like it's something about the entertainment factor or the fact that, that with a, somebody that is organized narcissistically, that the ego is so visible. Is that, is that why you chose this particular area of study? 
Well, I'll tell you, you know, in, in academics, you start studying something and every once in a while it goes crazy. So I was studying narcissism back in the day and the Columbine shootings happened. And when we looked at those, uh, it was all about narcissism, or at least, at least in large part. And so lots of things have happened socially, then the creation of social media and selfies, all these things have happened. They kept going, yeah, narcissism matters. I, I'll stick with this. Yeah. So I think there's something about the culture that's made narcissism sort of important. But in terms of the entertainment, I, it's maybe it's not the right term, but when I study you know, straight up entitlement, people who just have a very strong sense of entitlement, I don't really like entitled people. Um, I, I don't like my own sense of entitlement. Maybe that's why I don't like entitled people. So it's not as much fun. But when you, when you marry that sense of entitlement with somebody who's charismatic and attention seeking and wants fame and status, you get kind of an interesting character that yeah. it's more interesting than somebody who's just self-centered all the time. It's somebody who's more entertaining, that can be nice in, in certain settings as long as they can't take advantage of you. So it's a more complicated character and that makes it more interesting to study than something that's just straight up negative. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've done so much research on narcissism. What's, what's changed in what you've learned or studied about it over time? Like, what is new that we're learning? I mean, your book is, has the word new in it. So yeah. what is, what is well, new? That's a, that's a great question. I'll tell you, when we, you know, when we started looking at narcissism, and this is back in me in the 90s, probably, maybe even late 80s, but probably early 90s, um, there's a lot of writing from the, from the therapeutic literature and the psychoanalytic or psychodynamic, you know, we might say the more Freudian traditions. And they thought a lot about narcissism, but they thought about it as this combination of really high self-esteem and really low self-esteem. This combination of I'm the best person in the world and secretly I don't like myself. And so this model came around of these people who are narcissistic, but people assume, well, deep down, they must really not like themselves. Or, you know, these other people are narcissistic and you can't tell, but deep down, they must fantasize about how great they are. And it, it turns out with the, you know, doing the, the, the personality science and really figuring out how to measure these things, that there are two things out there that we call narcissism. And one is this more grandiose, extroverted form. These are the folks you end up dating and the folks you work for and the folks that go to, you know, go into politics and your bad boss. So the more extroverted, the more driven and they're self-centered and have a sense of entitlement. There's another group of folks who have that same self-centeredness and sense of self-importance, but they're also a little bit insecure. Um, they're not really risk-taking. They're, they're a little introverted, maybe. Sometimes we call them shy or covert or hidden or basement narcissists. And these are what we you know, most generally call vulnerable narcissism. So we have these two forms of narcissism out there. And the mistake people were making, we're thinking these are the same people when they're just different people. Yeah, for the most part. Sometimes it, it, I should say sometimes you do get people who are both grandiose and vulnerable, but mm -hmm. that's more unusual than just the way it works. Yeah. You know, and as somebody who's worked with couples for a long time, sometimes you'll see both in the room. You know, I'll mm -hmm. see one exhibiting one and one exhibiting the other or a particular style matched with another style. I, I'm curious, though, as somebody who I I have to say, this is going to sound like a weird thing, and people are going to be pissed when they hear me say it. <laughs> I have empathy for narcissists. Like, I, I do, except for the ones that are really abusive and hurt people. Um, but I, there's something painful sometimes for some folks around organizing in this way. 
Um, I just, you know, it's like the knee-jerk reaction whenever somebody's dissatisfied with their romantic partner, you know, they're a toxic narcissist. It's the first thing out of their mouth. So is it helpful to even use this terminology? I mean, what's useful about the lens, I guess? So I tend to agree with you. When I hear about an oligarch spending $150 million for for a modern piece of modern art, I think that guy must be suffering so hard and be so empty and lonely to do something that dumb. I mean, I, I often see this as sort of suffering, that somebody's got to spend all that energy pumping themselves up instead of just enjoying their life. But in those cases, like you're saying, where it's toxic and abusive and you know, sometimes you say malignant narcissism, that, that's just really bad. But often I have a lot of empathy for it. I think it's, you know, these things are trade-offs. When I hear the word narcissism, to me, it's a little bit negative, but it's really... It's really a trade-off. It's a technical term. When people use it in the world, especially when they're talking about relationships, it becomes something very negative. Like you said, my ex-boyfriend's a toxic narcissist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and you say something in the book that I totally agree with, and I joke with folks, because I actually have folks that self-diagnose themselves as narcissists. They show up in my therapy office, and they feel really bad about themselves because of the cultural stigma. And they'll say, oh, I think I'm a narcissist. I'm like, well, the fact that you're saying that out the gate, you probably aren't. (laughs) But um, my question for you is, aren't we all a little bit narcissistic, especially in Western European culture? My goodness. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. This is a, this is a, you know, this is a personality trait. And most of us are somewhere in the middle and people can be at the high end or the low end and people can change throughout their life. You know, you might be more narcissistic at some points in your life than other points in your life. So I think it's generally, it's, it's definitely part of our, you know, of our psyche. The clinical disorder of narcissistic personality dis- disorder is, is relatively rare. You know, one to 2% is kind of the point estimate. And this is extreme narcissism that also has impairment, clinically significant impairment. Your narcissism has to be damaging your life, might be ruining your marriage, hurting your partner, might be leading you to make the poor decisions. But whatever the case is, if the narcissism isn't bad, it's not a disorder. So lots of us have the traits of narcissism. So I'm just going to repeat that for everybody listening. Narcissism is a trait, and it's only 1% to 2% of folks that have the kind of impairment that would qualify you to have a personality disorder diagnosis. Is that right? Am I getting that right? Yeah, that's what the research shows. Okay, which, you know, research changes over time. It does. I I said that very carefully because we had estimates up to 6%. Um, in some past studies, and it really depends on some of the definitional stuff. And now I, I'm pretty confident with the one to two percent, but I want to put that disclaimer on that I will change as the research does. Yeah. So you've got this book out there. I, of course, I'm going to consume it because I'm a clinician, but other people that aren't clinicians are going to consume this book and are consuming this book. My sense is that you want to not just sell books, because I already talked to you and you said, yeah, no, I'm, yeah. I'm a researcher. But I have this sense of, of, of already in the few minutes I've gotten to know you that you want to have an impact. So when someone picks up your book and they start reading about narcissism, what do you hope they do with this information? How do you hope it serves them and their community? 
You know, I, and this is probably my academic bias and also my bias is I really don't like telling people how to live their life. You know, I don't like when people tell me and I, I don't like to do it to people. What I, what I try to give people in the book is, is a lot of tools. I, I snuck in a little bit of a personality psych class in there too. I hope no one notices, but I really try to give people a, a bunch of understanding or the possibility to understand how we measure these things and we talk about these things. So that if they are dealing with narcissism or want to deal with narcissism, they can do it. But, but I'm not just saying, okay, here's what it is. Here's what to do. I mean, this is trying to give people some movement or some ability to, to make decisions. And a lot of people, you know, you might be in marketing and go, I want to understand narcissism because I want to go out and make some money. I'm like, that's fine too. You know, it, it's just a matter of understanding it and then deciding what you want to do. It's really interesting lens, Keith, because what I actually hear you saying is that you're empowering people. You're saying, hey, look, I'm going to give you some information on how we've studied this and what we've discovered and give you some, a menu of different ways to hold this information so that you could make some informed choices about how you want to live your life. Huh. Yeah, I, I never, I've never thought of that term, but that's kind of what I'm doing. I want people to be better and to be happy. And uh, if this can help, great. And if it doesn't, don't worry about it. Read something more fun. <laughs> you are so funny. Well, so there's a few elephants in the room, though, that we need to talk about, right? Yeah. I have to imagine, even though you're this generous guy and you're, you're, you've got this curious mind who likes to research interesting topics, the timing of your book is fascinating because, I mean, I thought it was really shocking when so many psychiatrists were willing to come out publicly on the record, which is sort of not yeah. usual and diagnose our president with narcissism. And um, I have to imagine that you get asked all the time about narcissism and leadership and, and are we sort of cultivating these traits in people yeah. in our culture? Yes. I, I, I get this question all the time and it's, it, I'm going to unpack it a little bit because I know the elephant in the room you're getting to. Um, but so, so one of the issues is narcissism and leadership. And obviously with Trump, people have talked about it because I've talked about it for, for a while. Um, and we've looked at Trump's personality profile by asking supporters, people support him, people support Hillary Clinton, to rate his personality on these sort of very nuanced, very detail-oriented measures. I'm going to it's a, a facet level personality assessment. And then we're able to turn those in, into narcissism to see what people really think. And with somebody like Trump, everybody sees Trump as having kind of a narcissistic personality configuration. I mean, he's a developer and a reality television star and a, and a president with, you know, trophy wives and his name on buildings. And I mean, this isn't, it's not hard to make the stretch from Trump to narcissism. I mean, it's, it's kind of was his brand for a long time. Yeah. The challenge is that people see his narcissism very differently. People who, who like him say, yeah, Trump is a bold, courageous leader. Sure, he's a little rough around the edges, but he's generally competent and he's generally doing what he thinks is best for me or for mm -hmm. the country. People who don't like Trump say, yeah, he's a bold leader that's a little rough around the edges. In fact, he's sort of completely deranged and dysregulated and he's going to destroy the world. Mm. And so you have two groups of people that both say, yeah, that guy's kind of a bold out there, you know, a little self-absorbed you know, character. And one says that's pretty good. And the other says that's really bad. Mm. So, so there's a very, there's a difference. 
And it's not surprising because when we've looked at the history of, of U.S. presidents based on the same personality profile, we've had lots of very narcissistic presidents. Yeah. Let Lyndon Johnson being the big standout, but Nixon, you know, Clinton, FDR, um, JFK, you know, especially with the extroversion. There's, there's lots of narcissistic leaders. And then we've had these very low narcissistic leaders like Jimmy Carter, maybe George Bush Sr., um, the narcissistic leaders get a lot done. Yeah. Yeah. No, For good I or ill. That. Yeah. No, they I also think get it's... impeached more. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Because they're probably riding that edge of, of yes. rules. Because if they're entitled, rules don't apply mm -hmm. to them. Right. hundred percent. That's what they're doing. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. I love how you're, you're sort of saying we're going to view narcissism from a different lens, depending on whether that person is working for us or maybe we see them as working against us, right? That we vilify Absolutely. or we lionize that person. That's, that's interesting. I suspect right. we do that in our personal lives too, in the same way. I mean, I, I can think of charismatic bosses I've had and really loved them, really loved them, but ha yeah. they probably were quite narcissistic. Mm -hmm. I have too. And I think you know, narcissistic characters or narcissistic individuals can be very polarizing for that reason. If you're on their side and, and you, you see the energy and the extroversion and the grandiosity, that can be kind of intoxicating. Yeah. But when you're faced with the toxicity, with the entitlement, with the manipulation, with the exploitativeness, when you get that side of narcissism, it's horrific. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, that's really... I, I like that you're holding the nuance of, of not making it all bad or, or all good that you're saying that there's a lot of perspective taking that we make here. Um, I guess the piece that's always been challenging for me when I think about narcissists in my life and my own narcissism are those places where there's so much self-absorption and lack of empathy that it, it's like, oh gosh, not very fun to relate to. Ego is, I mean, look, ego can help you sometimes, but it, it can be, it can do such interpersonal damage. And when I get very narcissistic or entitled, like I said, entitlement is my thing. You know, I'm on a plane flight and it's not working and people are incompetent. I just turn into a real jackass and it's not a person I like to be like, I don't like that person. And you know, so you see this happen, you just try to struggle with it. Like, I don't want to be this person. Maybe I'll try to be nicer. Maybe I'll try to be more loving. Understand that this person didn't really create the weather problem that delayed my flight. Maybe it's an act of God that's doing it. Maybe mm -hmm. I should be a little more forgiving. Maybe I should be a little more accepting of the vagaries of life. You know, it's a challenge, but I, I struggle with it. Yeah. So I'm curious, Aside from cycle, you know, aside from nurture nature kinds of inputs, I'm also curious about the social inputs because I told you before we jumped on together that I'm I'm now living in Germany, and I think I'm perceived as a wild narcissist in this country <laughs> in ways that I wouldn't be in America, right? And so I'm curious: Are there cultural inputs to a how we perceive and pick up narcissism? and how we learn narcissism that you may or may not have studied. Just curious. Yes. Um, you know, the question you're asking about how you're perceived in Germany is a really interesting one. And when you said it, I thought, 
damn it, why didn't I do that study? Uh, <laughs> because it's really an interesting idea. Start a new one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just something that happened. So I'm thinking of an experience I had. I was in Tokyo recently with my kids, just went over and, and uh, you know, in, in, in a very collectivistic society like, you know, like Japan, people yeah. who are extroverted stand out. And I remember being at, uh, what is that? Uh, uh, I forget. Uh, Shibuya. Anyway, the big intersection there in Tokyo where there's just thousands and thousands of people walking across. I remember being there and some guy, Japanese guy holding a sign that says free hugs. And so I went over and to hug, to hug the guy. I'm the only, you know, the American there is hugging him because I look so extroverted. They go, this person must be narcissistic or they must be full of themselves. Or what they do is go, yeah, it's just an American. That's just how they are. Right. And they're not, and they're not using a personality label. They're just sort of putting me as an outgroup. Yeah, those crazy Americans. That's just how they, how they do things, and they're just kind of cowboys. So it could be what's happening with you in Germany, which is still more collectivistic than the U.S. or a little yeah. more, you know, integrated so so socially. Uh, maybe not East Berlin. That's kind of fun, but you know, like most of <laughs> Germany is pretty, pretty organized. Um, you know, people might see you as being super extroverted and, and a little bit in your face. And I know you, you're probably a lot more informal. You're probably a lot friendlier than, mm -hmm. than a lot of the Germans. You probably connect to people much more quickly than Germans do. And they might think you're narcissistic. They might think you're really shallow or they might just think you're an American. So I think that's really an interesting um, I'm trying to think of America where people come from another society that's sort of more gregarious than ours, but there aren't a lot more gregarious than ours. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it might be like when a Texan goes to New Hampshire or something. Yeah. And, and they think the Texans are narcissistic. So yeah. maybe that's part of it. Yeah. Well, and then I'm also considering some of the other inputs like race or socio or economic status. You know, it's funny. I, my grandfather was an orphan. So during the depression, his mother had to choose some of her children to give up because she was a single yeah. mom. And so she and my grandfather's brother were given up to an orphanage at seven and eight. And by just by the sheer need to survive, he developed an incredibly gregarious personality. Right. And I wonder about that because he was poor. Um, he didn't have any parents. He was kind of thrown to the wolves, so to speak. How does that shape narcissism? It, do you know? You know, I, I don't know. Uh, and the reason I'm going to say I don't know is because we need to have enough people who'd have these had these kind of experiences to see. You yeah. Know? But when you look at just straight up trauma, like childhood trauma, it predicts personality dysfunction. So trauma predicts personality disorders, but it's not very specific. Yeah. So in the, the example you're giving me, I could see somebody becoming very gregarious because that's a way you can adapt to that's people. Right. I, I had a, my, my, my advisor in graduate school was, was Greek and he was super gregarious because he's like, I couldn't speak English. So that's how I learned to just relate to people and it really worked for me. Yeah. That seems very healthy, but you can also see somebody in that same position becoming resentful and isolated and hostile and, and you know, shy. So I, I think there's different ways you could go, um, but that push for gregariousness, I think is important, but more broadly in a very individualistic society where jobs are changing, careers are changing, and then you go into someplace like a big urban center, big city, 
that there's going to be a big pull there for narcissism, for being mm. being confident, for being self-promotional, for putting yourself out there, for being gregarious, for being extroverted. I mean, in those kind of environments, it's really going to work because you got to stand out. Well, it just seems like what we're indexing for, and I don't want to be all political, but I, I was a political science undergrad, so I tend to get unpolitical, but in a capitalist society where you're trying to foster healthy competition and these are the mechanisms that you stand out, it seems like we're indexing for narcissism, no? Well, when I went back and read Adam Smith, uh, yeah, he talks about this. So he says, when you go in the marketplace, um, the, the person selling fruit who seems the most confident says the fruit's the best, the one who's going to sell the most. So the idea was that that self-promotion and maybe ego to some extent is caught is bound up with some of our capitalist system. But what happens over time is in those initial sales and sort of single shot episodes, braggadocio and confidence really help over time a lot of economic relationships become based on trust and become based on long-term you know, relationships. And that's where narcissism fails. Mm. So narcissism, I think, has a, has a really good runway in kind of a loose capitalist system. It's a Wild West system, and, and you're going to find a lot of narcissism. I bet if you look at specific economic areas, you know, that are, that are Wild West type areas, cryptos or some of these, you know, interesting emerging market areas, you're going to find people who are narcissistic attracted to those, just like you find people who are narcissistic attracted to entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. But there are also these mechanisms in our society that, that fight against that narcissism, like trust, long-term relationships, partnerships, those kind of things. So we have these multiple forces going on at the same time. But I think you're 100% right I, I, that, that our society, I mean, what's capitalism? I get, I get a bunch of people to give me 100 bucks so I can have 1,000 bucks and go do something. Yeah. And it take, takes an ego to do that, to get yeah. that capital together to do things. So yeah. I, I think it's very much part of our, our system. Well, it's just, it, it makes me laugh because the trust thing is appealing, right? But if you've got a bunch of people peddling trust and a bunch of people peddling ego, but the people peddling ego are better salesmen, Ego's going to win every time. Well, ego, I mean, I look at it where there's always the, <laughs> there's always the ego market, you know, and it's, it's always somebody out there trying to be ahead of the pack, being cool. And that's how fashion works. You've got somebody out there doing what's best. And then when looks at that person, and I always think of it as arrogance and then anxiety. Mm -hmm. So the first people making social changes that are you know, I, with me, it was always te teeth whitening that got me. I was like, when did everyone just get these white teeth? Oh my God. Well, <laughs> it started with celebrities, you know, cause that's their job. They have to look good. Even if they're, you know, playing a, a, a dead caveman, they need perfectly white teeth. That's just how celebrities <laughs> work. So celebrities start and then wealthy people who want to look like celebrities and then people a little more shallow and narcissistic are willing to go into some debt to get those teeth. And then people like me go, God, I look ugly in the mirror. I feel so ashamed. I better get my teeth white. So it's a process of dragging people over using arrogance and using anxiety to, to, to get the, the tail end. Yeah. I don't know why I'm feeling so uncomfortable now talking about this. I think that I feel a little hopeless or something like maybe 
I'm trying to go, okay, Tracy, it's okay. A world of narcissists isn't a world that doesn't have trust and doesn't have empathy and doesn't have kindness. But I'm feeling a little deflated right now. Like, oh, I, the guys I don't want you to, are going to win. I don't want you to feel deflated. Ego really is effective. Trust in our country has been dropping since the 70s. I've done research on trust. When trust gets lower and lo- lower, self-centeredness goes up and up. That's just what happens. If there's mm. no trust, you got to look out for number one. And so society becomes more selfish. I would rather be in a high trust society like Northern Europe and some other places because those are kind of easier to live in. Trust is great being with mm. people you trust. But I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not thinking the world's coming to an end. This is just a process. People are learning. Well, my narcissism wants to be a narcissist for trust. <laughs> I'm the most trustworthy person. So there's this no, part- but creating a world where there's a yeah. more trusting society, you know? I mean, I think that's why we've got thousands of people that sit on sidewalks. I think we'd like to change the culture in some way. Oh, yeah. And what's really interesting, what you're saying, though, is you can, you can harness your own ego to make the world better. Yeah. So these things can be aligned. You can say, I'm going to be famous by making everyone more trusting. And you can set a metric for trust and say, hey, are you going to do that? And go find somebody. I mean, you could figure out how to do this and go do it. And it would be awesome if you did it. I, I would say, you know, in, on Netflix, they had this documentary for Bikram Yoga. I don't know if you've ever oh, watched yeah. that, but it's very interesting. And classic narcissistic kind of character style. At least that's how he appears in the movie. I was cracking up half the time. And maybe a kind of a horrible person, I don't know. But his yoga is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I am a big fan phony. of Bikram, actually. A <laughs> Bikram I, yoga, I should say. I, I, I kind of go once a week. And I kind of go, you know what? This Bikram guy is kind of an arrogant guy, but I'm doing his yoga. And, you know, the guy who came up with it, a gauche or whoever, didn't get the credit. But that's just the way the world is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like the way that you said that. And now that I think about it, I think about all the activism that's going on around the world. And a lot of those people that are spearheading it have a fair amount of narcissism too. They're just Absolutely. It for a particular thing that I happen to sanction. So maybe I support it more and it feels less uncomfortable to me, but I is, you know, you know a little bit about what sidewalk talk does. And if there were, I, I'm wanting to honor what you said about, Hey, I'm not the kind of guy that wants to tell people how to live their life. But it sounds to me like you believe that it would be good if there were an elevation of trust, right? Absolutely. And what's coming up for me is, is there a particular way that you can show up in your relationships, even with people that are narcissistic, that you can begin to put your thumb on the scale a little bit and, and maybe create more of a trusting society just by how you're showing up and relating? That's a, it's a very interesting question that I'm going to have to think about for a second. Um, My first thing, my first inclination is to be the change you want to see. So if you want people to be trusting, be a trustworthy person. Mm -hmm. So that's the easy thing. The second thing that I think is maybe more challenging, but might be worth just thinking about with something like narcissism is you don't have to trust everybody with everything, Mm -hmm. but are there places where you could start to develop trust with somebody that might be small places? Like, look, I know you're going to screw me over if you have to. I know if that, you know, I know if there's a fire in the house, you're going to grab your kid and let me sleep through it. That's just the way the world is. But maybe on this little agreement, we can just build an alliance here. 
And maybe we can build a little bit here. And maybe we can work together in this little spot. And maybe over time, kind of slowly build it uh, rather than saying, look, I got to just open my heart to you. And, you know, it's just not going to work. But maybe if you maybe incrementally might be a choice. I don't know. I'm, I'm really spitballing here, Tracy. I, I like spitballing, I just, though. Yeah, I, this I, is real I, relationship. This is us not being narcissistic. We're like playing and sort of having a conversation. No, I think that's I think that's right. In fact, I I'm in a, a women's group and we've been talking about that. That you know, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little irreverent here because you're so playful. But there there is something that we're a little addicted to. And, and this one woman that I'm working with, she calls it vulnerability porn. She goes, "We love to share all of our vulnerability in certain groups, and you really have to go slower with that and decide, hey." Mm-hmm. Is this person somebody that I want to share all these details with, right? Uh, And it's kind of what I hear you saying. Cultivate trust and be gradual about it. You don't have to share everything all at once. And and it's not about entertaining someone with all the deep, dark secrets of your life. But to cultivate a meaningful and lasting trust might be more gradual. I like how you put that. Um, And I think when you said that back to me, it's really important because this is where people get in trouble with romantic relationships with narcissism is they, they fall so quickly and people who develop relationships very quickly. They're just some people that tend to fall in love fast. They tend to be at even more risk for this. Mm. So slowing things down in the relationship world is really, I think, important if you're, if you don't want to get hurt. I mean, if you're just having fun, do what you want, but if if you don't want to get hurt, I would slow it down. Um, And it reminds me of something, this is from the the old psychoanalytic writer, Judy Vorst, who wrote Mm -hmm. these great children's books, but she had this saying that the the best of friends are friends in spots, meaning that you can be a really good friend with somebody. Like I have some great friends that, you know, we just fly fish. But we know nothing about, we don't talk about anything about work or family. And yep. I have other friends who talk about work with all the time, but we don't talk about fishing or not talk about family. And other friends talk about family. It's just different kind of friends. And that's great. You know, I have a lot of friends. It's nice yeah. to have them. Yeah, that's, and it also, it, it also seems in, in some ways more authentic because you're not trying to force that person to connect with you on all the things. I think that yeah. that starts to feel, it's hey, really it's like hard. Stack and then B. Sometimes you're, the person might be performing to try to match your, you know, things. Yeah, I love that. Right, and and in these Western societies, ourselves are so elaborate and kind of precious, and we, you know, we have so much, so many complex interests and beliefs and things. It's just how are you going to find somebody just like you? And if you yeah. did, that'd be kind of boring. So it's probably not going to happen, even if you wanted to. Yep. It's it's the, one of the big pieces of I, I try to be spacious, but I do give advice in the couples therapy room or or when I'm working with clients, and I do say sometimes the person that's super exciting for you in the beginning is exciting for all the wrong reasons. So I want you to date someone that you're a little bored with. <laughs> that that I would give that advice if I were you, because that is 100% consistent with what you find with narcissism. I mean, people just they they. They go, this is so exciting. This person's so confident. We're having such an exciting relationship. I'm just like, oh, that'll be a great six weeks, but God, it's <laughs> going to get rough. You know? Yeah. Um, totally understandable, by the way. And people are like, why am I so stupid? I'm like, what, to date somebody hot? <laughs> like, and charismatic so and yeah, wealthy a- and attractive and big muscles yeah. or, yeah. Yeah. That's not stupid. That's just normal. I mean, you just, you just you the, the stupid thing was thinking you were going to turn that into to something else yeah. you know 
Pat and Love makes the distinction, she calls it, 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 is the person a date match or a mate match? And there's a distinction. I like that Someone too. that's a date match or a mate match. And, you know, per do you want a partnership? Yes. Right. So, well, listen, I know we're at the end of our time. You're just delightful. Please bring your sons over to Germany. I'll take you down <laughs> to, the, to the beer garden. We'll hang out. Um, but I, we do have this um, that actually does feel quite precious to me, this way that we do wrap up. It's kind of a ritual in our dialogue where I get out of the way and just imagine that there are 8,000 people that take it upon themselves to sit on sidewalks and really practice empathy with strangers, kind of like your free hugs guy. If you were to speak directly to them, either a wish or some wisdom of your own, what would you say to those folks? This is a tough question because I don't have a simple answer. What I would say is when you're trying to face people, we have, a, we have an ego, we have a self, we have beliefs about ourselves, we, we, we hold these very dear for a lot of reasons. I think it's important if you want to be able to connect with people, to be able to take yourself a little less seriously, maybe, maybe to be able to set it aside, maybe to think of yourself as a process and not a thing. It's a, it's a thing and it's a, it's a work in progress that you can change. It's interesting. It's more of a river than a fortress. So I think looking at the self as something more flexible, more open for yourself allows you to connect with people a little better um, without that judgment creeping in, without the comparison creeping in, without having to say, yeah, I'm better than this person. I'm hotter than them. I mean, all the stuff I say to myself, you know, just direct, <laughs> I mean, directly connecting with people. If you can whittle that ego down a little bit, makes it easier. Mm, well said. Well, I personally am really excited to, to pick up a copy of your book and, and dig in more. Um, Keith, anything else that feels important? We're going to, for everyone that's listening, so you're going to have links to not only um, the new science of narcissism, but Keith's written several books that I think are really, really interesting. So we'll put links to those in the show notes and they'll go out on email. Um, but it's just been great getting to meet you. And you're such an unusual, fun, loving character for studying such a serious <laughs> topic. So I'm glad that this topic has you. I'm glad this topic has you. Well, well, thank you, Tracy. I, I like that you're out there talking to people because what I found in my life is just talking to people all over the world has given me so much more insight than I've ever learned from reading books or writing books. So whatever you're doing, keep talking to people. Thanks, Keith. All right. Be well. Thank you. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of kind.